Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. So today, I think that's, this is something I want us to understand, because every one of us is afraid of something. And I, I want you to begin by asking, what is it that you're most afraid of? What is it that occupies your thought life? What are the first things you think about when you wake up, and the last things that you think about as you drift to sleep? Or what are the biggest obstacles that you face in your life? See, today, we are going to go into what is perhaps the best-known story in the whole Hebrew Bible, um, and I have more to say about this passage than I could possibly get to today. Last night, I asked Alyssa way too late at night on a Saturday, like, hey, will you help me with my sermon? And what I think I had was four sermons, and so we'll see how this goes <laughs> tonight. Um, and, but, and so I, even this morning, I was up early and, and wrestling things through and trying to cut as much as I can, and I came to a point, honestly, church, where... I, I was trying to decide how, how I could, you know, trim off parts of this text to be able to fit in more time, and I'm increasingly convinced that what matters most is that you hear God's word today, because that is where the power lies, and not my own, and so I'm going to read a longer section than anticipated and use whatever time I have left. So here's what we read in Exodus chapter 14. If you have a Bible, you can open it with me there. It will also be on the screens. And so the Israelites have come out of Egypt. And we saw last week God's deliverance through the signs, the ten signs that he had against the Egyptians, that he, his name would be known. And he sa it says then, when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we've done that we've let Israel go from serving us? And so he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. And took 600 chosen chariots and all of the other chariots of Egypt with, off, with the officers over all of them. And the Lord, Yahweh, hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And then he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is this because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this alone that we, is, is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. 
Lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea, and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And, and I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was, a dark, and there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on the left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and all his horsemen. And in the morning, watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the waters may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen all of, of all the, the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved, the, saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And the, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying... I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. His, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. And the enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw out my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. 
The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chief, are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his, with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you feel the emotion of this text? The anguish, the fear, the despair at the beginning that turns into singing and celebration at the end. You can see in the repetition of the, the awe and wonder that three times it reminds us that, that the Lord saved Israel, that they walked through on dry land, but, but the, the Egyptians were thrown into the sea. It makes sense why this miracle has been such an important mark. It's such a well-known story. There's one commentator that pointed out that this miracle has been proclaimed by composers like Handel and actors like Charlton Heston, preachers like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., writers like Leon Uris, cartoonists like Charles Schultz, animators like Walt Disney, and even singers like Bob Marley saying, send us, send us another brother Moses from across the Red Sea. Come to break down oppression, rule inequality, wipe away transgression, and set the captives free. And so this story is a marker that forever marked the people of God and continues to us today. And because it's so well known, I think it also leads to a lot of misinterpretation and misinformation as people have been telling and retelling the story. And so we'll stick to the facts presented in the text today. Um, now, briefly on that, I'm not going to comment on all the ways that I think this story gets interpreted wrongly. We'll just stick to what's in it. But the question always comes up of where did this happen? And so people want to dig into where did the sea crossing happen? Where is Mount Sinai? And all of these questions. And they're not unimportant questions. Um, but I don't think that they're necessarily central to the text. But briefly here. The translation Red Sea is part of what confuses us, because you can see here a map that includes the Red Sea that would lead us to maybe think that there was a crossing across the large part of the sea from Africa into modern-day Saudi Arabia. Um, there's all kinds of, you can find all kinds of video, I can remember a video that was released in the 90s that we had the VHS cassette for, which is a very old-fashioned sentence. And um, where these guys were dressed up like Indiana Jones and trying to piece back together the Exodus account. Uh, all of that is fairly unhelpful. But I will say this, that the, in the Hebrew text, the Hebrew here is yamsuf. And that language, yamsuf, is best translated actually as sea of reeds rather than the Red Sea. 
Um, it, the Septuagint translation, was, which was in the 300s BC, a Greek translation of the Old Testament text, called it the Red Sea, and that translation has stuck with us for a couple of thousand years. Um, others have noticed this too, though, that it's not, you know, Luther, Calvin, others have noticed that that Sea of Reeds is a more faithful translation, and there aren't reeds, strictly speaking, on the river, on the sea banks of the Red Sea because it's too deep, too massive a body of water. And so, um, within that, it, it, there's also, there, there's, there are also, if you see to the north of Egypt, by the Nile Delta, these marshy lakes, these bitter lakes as they're called. Um, so there's all kinds of discussion and debate about where the sea crossing happened. Briefly, and then we'll move into the text, um, Dr. James Hoffmeyer, I think, has shown very convincingly that the water patterns in northern Egypt and northern Africa are very different now than they were in centuries past, which is normal of deserts, where sands shift, and also of river deltas, which change over time. Um, it's, it's very possible, the whole coastline of Egypt has changed over the last couple of millennia. We have clear data on that and satellite imagery that can help. And it's possible that the Gulf of Suez, which you can see that divides Egypt from the Sinai Peninsula, which is in the center of that map, um, extended toward as far north as the Bitter Lakes that are up above it. Um, it's likely that the sea crossing was up in the farther north end of Egypt and not down south just by the details of how far the Israelites had traveled and the markers that we know. That's interesting stuff. We could talk for a long time about the location of it, but ultimately that isn't the point of the text. If it was the, was the point of the text, I think it would be clearer. The same way that we can talk about who the Pharaoh is that is responsible for all of this and he's not named because he's not the point of the text. What we've seen is that, and what we see today is that God's continued self-disclosure is the point, that we would know who he is. And so there's two images that we have of who the Lord, Yahweh, is in this story. First, the Lord is a warrior. And this is imagery that I don't think many of us think of first in our current context and culture. We think of God, we want to think of him more as fatherly, loving, embracing, warm, and, and cozy. And so to hear that God is a warrior, a man of war, as they sang, is something that is hard for us to comprehend. But let's, let's look at this. This is in the people of Israel cried out to God back in chapter 14. And they cried out saying to Moses, I love this, like they've seen God bring the 10 plagues against Egypt. And even the, you know, the last seven of those were just on the Egyptians. And so the darkness was just on the Egyptians. They were saved from the blood of the lamb for the killing of the firstborn. They watched God's power coming out of Egypt, and yet they get into, into the wilderness just for a short amount of time. And the first barrier they came to, I think it's important here, just before this too, that God was leading them in a pillar of cloud and fire. We didn't read that section today, but, but a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And the Lord chose to lead them, not in the most efficient way to the land he had promised, but he led them instead toward this sea of reeds. And so he brought them to this barrier. But the first barrier that the people of God faced, what do they do? They turn to Moses and say, did you bring us out here because there's no graves back in Egypt? Thanks for the optimism, Israelites. Can you imagine being Moses at this point? He's like, guys, I stood in front of Pharaoh how many times for you, and that's what you've got for me? The first barrier we face. So what have you done? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. That's what we wanted, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die out here in the wilderness. But Moses stands up and leads them well and reminds them of who Yahweh is, their God. And he says three things. He gives them three commands. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord. 
This is what he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will not see again. The Lord will fight for you. What do they have to do? You have only to be silent. He says, fear not, stand firm, watch. See the salvation that God's going to bring. And the only thing that they were called to do was to shut their mouths. Be silent. God is the one to fight this war. What a promise to be given. And I think that when we superimposed ourselves back in the text, which is inevitable, that we go, how would we be reacting if I was Moses, if I was one of the Israelites? I think we have a tendency to say, like, oh, I think I would have believed here because, you know, God had done all these things to these Egyptians. How could these people be so scared and allow their fear of Pharaoh to drive them toward wanting to go back into slavery in Egypt when reality is we do the same things? When, circum- when we hit barriers in our lives, when things don't go the way we want them to, when, when our enemies are pressing in against us, we have a tendency to respond by freezing in fear and starting to complain, by running away or looking for a way to escape, just like the Israelites, or by trying to take things into our own hands, which if they would have tried to take things into their own hands here, they were no match for Pharaoh and his chariots. And so the call here that they have is to, to simply be silent and watch because the Lord is a warrior, is one that we would struggle with and do struggle with in our lives just like they did. And again, this is an image that I, I think we don't often think of God this way because we want to think about a warmer and cozier side of who he is. And it's not wrong that he's a father. It's not wrong that he loves us. Those things are true, but it's also true that he is a God who is holy and just And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Because his holiness demands justice. And he will triumph over his enemies. This isn't unique to this passage either. We see this in Daniel when Daniel pictures and looks ahead to the coming of the Son of Man, one who will come on the clouds of heaven and rule over, over the rulers of the earth. We see it in Psalm 2, when, it, when there's the call, kiss the Son lest he be angry, and a warning against the rulers of this world. We see it throughout the book of Zechariah as the prophet looks ahead to the coming day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is a fearful thing because when God comes down, it is always in judgment. We see it in the New Testament, in Hebrews 12, when we're told our God is a consuming fire, which is language that we see in the song here, that that it's in his right hand that there is power. He sent out his fury, and it consumed them like stubble. And so the Lord is a warrior. The second imagery that we have in this passage is that the Lord is a savior, and the Lord won the victory. And so this comes out in the song, particularly in 15 verses 11 to 13. We see at the center point of this song that the people burst out singing together. And, and I love this, that there's this, they burst out in song together. And this piece of poetry in chapter 15 is possibly the oldest actual piece of the Hebrew Bible that we have. Moses was the one who collated the stories of the people of God and wrote the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. 
And so here is the first thing that happens when they get across the sea. They burst out singing, and it's been preserved for us. And I love that Miriam, the prophetess, sings also, and that, that she sings a refrain and leads the women in singing this refrain that, that I believe the way this is put together is that it was a refrain that was sung throughout the song as a call and response as the people of Israel were singing to God, saying, I will sing to the Lord. He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And so if we imagine this then, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And back to the refrain, so sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. When we get to verses 11 to 13, it, it cries out to the uniqueness of this Lord. Who is like you, O Lord, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you in, in majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. And listen to this. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The cry of the Israelites is that the Lord Yahweh is their savior that the Lord won the victory. And they were able to look back at the sea and, and understand the way that he had won. I mean, don't miss here that, that they saw the bodies of the Egyptians awash on the seashore. That they were able to see that it wasn't just that God had, had separated them from the Egyptians, but that he had conquered over them and had saved them from the hands of Pharaoh. But do you see what it says then about his love for his people? That he leads his people in hesed love. This is, another, this is a Hebrew word that I would love for you to know and to learn. It's the word hesed, which is a terrible pronunciation of it. <laughs> but this hesed love is a central theme throughout all of Scripture. And this word hesed is, is, it means it's used most often of God's love for his people. It has connotations of covenant commitment and so you see it translated in the ESV as his steadfast love or if you have NIV I think NIV probably uses the word loving kindness and so this this language this is the God's love for us for his people now this is important to us because God's love for his people is so different than the way that we typically love we love the idea of unconditional love but in function most of us are incredibly transactional with, the, with our relationships. And so when we say, man, I just love being with that person. You know, I, they're, they're great. I love being around them. Often what we mean is, I love how being with this person makes me feel about me. We do this in relationships. I do this all the time where I catch myself where I'll start out with good motives and be like, hey, I'm going to do this thing. Like, I'm going to do the dishes tonight, which normally is my kid's job at this point, which is glorious. And, but if I say, I'm going to do this tonight because I want Alyssa and my family to know how much I love them. There's not a bad motive there, but then if I do the dishes and clean up the kitchen and I come out, you know, I come out of the kitchen like, all right. <laughs> Show me your love. <laughs> I want you to recognize, wow, you are so self-sacrificial that you just took that mess and brought order to the chaos and cleaned it all 
and you've walked out here, thank you for serving us so well. And instead, when there's zero recognition, it shows the fallenness of my heart and the transactional nature of the way that I love, that when I don't receive that love, I'm like, hey, did you notice I did the dishes? Here's a chance. <laughs> you can still shower me with the love that you've said you, you have for me. We don't love unconditionally. My favorite translation for the Hebrew word chesed comes actually from the Jesus Storybook Bible, the children's book, which says that this is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Listen to this. God saves us and leads us through his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what the Israelites were calling out here. Now remember, they were grumbling at the beginning. At the beginning, they were saying to Moses, like, were there no graves in Egypt, Mo? <laughs> like, you brought us out here to die, we would have rather stay there. At least we would have lived a little bit longer. And now they're saying, God has led us, and he led us to this barrier and through this barrier because of his great love for us, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And praise God that he loves that way because, again, we do not. I think if, if I would have done everything that God did in bringing the Israelites to this point and brought them to their first barrier to say, here's a cha another chance for me to show them my glory and show the Egyptians my glory and who I am, and the Israelites responded by like, what, were there not enough graves back in Egypt? I think I would have responded by saying, I'm going to remove this cloud that's dividing you from the Egyptians, and we'll just watch things play out. <laughs> Moses said, fear not. <laughs> Moses said, to, to, you know, to, he's, he, the three commands, he can fear not, stand firm, and you'll see the salvation of the Lord. Well, maybe you should be afraid and start running. <laughs> but God doesn't respond that way. His hesed love to his people not only saved them from the hands of the Egyptians and saved them from the sea, he then led those whom he has redeemed. Finally, the people are able to sing to him and call out and cry out about their own redemption. That they've been purchased from slavery to follow him in freedom. But freedom does not mean that he just takes them out of the wilderness and, and through the Sea of Reeds. And now that God says, all right, you're free. Instead, he says, no, if you're going to experience freedom, then it means following me and I'm going to continue to lead you. And this is, again, we don't think about freedom that way. We think that God should bring us through something and let, then let us go. But if we think about freedom that way, we will land, land ourselves in worse circumstances than if we follow the one who has redeemed us. We have to remember that God is the one who pays the cost for our freedom. Fourth, the Lord guides his people by his strength. And so we see this, you've led your people in your steadfast love, the people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them by your strength. And so, again, there's a tone change here from, from 14 to 15, where there's fear that the Israelites could not trust that the Lord was guiding them in, in love, redemption, and strength. And now they've seen his saving power, and you see that God doesn't say to them, I am the Lord, and I will continue to work now through your strength. But instead says, they cry out, you are going to continue to lead us by the strength of the Lord who is able to conquer the Egyptians. And then fifth in these two verses, it says that the Lord, Yahweh, guides his people into his home. They cry out to him, singing, you lead your people to your holy abode. 
At the end of the chapter, you'll bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And the Lord will reign forever and ever. And so they're looking ahead. They weren't there yet. The Israelites weren't out of the wilderness. Their journey was just beginning. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that they mess things up and they end up for 40 more years out in the wilderness. But they had a confidence. They were able to sing this way, that they were looking ahead to a place of God's rest and provision and care and peace in his sanctuary. Why were they able to sing that way? On the, and this is on the shores of the Sea of Reeds while the Egyptians' bodies were still washing up. Why were they able to sing this way? Well, because they had seen their salvation. They'd, they had seen God as a warrior fight their battle and as a savior bring them through. And they had hope in the promises that he had made so that now they could proclaim those promises. And in spite of their ongoing discomfort, in spite of their ongoing uncertainty, that they had no idea where they were headed, they had a pillar of cloud leading them into the desert outside of the place where they were comfortable. And still, they were able to sing praises to his name. Listen, we get overcome by fear in our lives, and we are prone to grumble like the Israelites. We, my hope today, though, in the time that we have left, is that, that you will be able to see that God is not distant. And the things we see of him here in the crossing of the sea are not just true for the Israelites in that moment, that these are characteristics of the one true and living God and that he is your warrior and your savior, the one who will fight for you. And we know this ultimately in Christ, that Jesus is our warrior and savior. Now again, this isn't often the way that we think about Jesus. We, we think about Jesus with children, saying, saying, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. And he, he takes up the children in his arms. We think about Jesus being tender and careful with, with people around him and healing people. And this is, these are the images we like to see of Jesus, again, warm and cuddly. And there's, those aren't wrong, but we also need to see that Jesus had a side of the fullness of God's holiness and justice as well. We don't often think about the Jesus who, who, took, who went outside and was angry enough that he wove up his own whip to go back into the temple courts and drive out the money changers. And so thinking about Jesus as warrior and savior is something we have to get our minds around. Now, John, the, John his cousin, who was baptizing people in the Jordan River, John thought about Jesus this way. We see that in Matthew chapter 3, that John anticipated Jesus to come and bring fiery judgment. And so there was a point at which when Jesus was healing people and, and, and he was teaching a lot, that John actually sent, he was, John was sitting in jail and he knew his life was about to end. And so he actually sent some of his disciples to Jesus to ask like, hey, are, are you actually the one? Because this isn't what I expected. And Jesus sent them back and quoted Isaiah and showed how this was coming to its fullness. But, but we need to see the warrior side of Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, we read this. Listen to this. If you, for those of you who are not Christians, this is the central, essential reality that Christianity proclaims. You who were dead in your trespasses... Scripture says on our own, we are God's enemies. We are on the side of the Egyptians, not the Israelites in this story. You who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? How are we possibly forgiven all of our own weakness and sin? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside. How? By nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Jesus' death on the cross, in our place, for our sin, was a moment of vulnerability and weakness. And we see Jesus crying out in Gethsemane, Lord, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But we also need to understand that Jesus' death on the cross was an act of war against the powers and principalities of darkness that would love to rob your soul of eternity in God's presence. And he won. The grave couldn't hold him. When he returns, the imagery we have of the return of Christ is this. Then I saw, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him uh, on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is a warrior. Because he is a warrior, he is also our Savior. And so when we think about what was cried out about Yahweh, the one true God by the Israelites, in, after crossing the sea because of God's power on display, the same things are true of Christ, that, that Christ is the ultimate victor. Colossians 2 shows us that he's already won the ultimate victory over death and the grave for us, over sin for us, and that when he returns, nothing will stand in his way. Jesus shows, leads us in the ultimate hesed love of God. In fact, he is the fullness and the, and the truest evidence of God's love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus alone has redeemed us. He is the one who has paid the price to purchase our souls from slavery to sin and freed us to follow him in that redemption. And Jesus guides us by his strength. He showed us power over the wind and the waves when his own disciples were responding in fear and he was able to stand up and say, be still. And he has the power to deliver us and redeem us. And Jesus will guide us home to ultimate rest. And this is the hope that we have. We aren't there yet. We're still in the wilderness. We have no idea how this thing is going to play itself out, but we know the ending, just like the Israelites. And so we can sing to God because we have hope in where this is going. One commentator, Alec Matir, said, he was basically saying, think about it. Think about what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan in the wilderness after passing through the Red Sea. If you're an Israelite, if you ask an Israelite, who are you? The Israelite might reply to you, well, I was in a foreign land. 
under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And our mediator led us out, and we crossed over, and now we're on our way to the promised land. We're not there yet, but he's given us his law to make us a community and his tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness, and, and he's present in our midst, and he will stay with us until we arrive home. And if you're a Christian, you can say the same thing in Christ word for word. One pastor observed that, that all the Israelites crossed over, but let's also realize this. That doesn't mean they all cross over with the same disposition. When we think about them crossing through the sea with, with water stacked up as walls on their right and their left on dry ground, that as they're walking through the sea, I think some of them were probably strutting at that point. Walking through the water and saying, look at this. Look at our God. Come on, Egypt, what do you have? Look at what we are able to do. And they had excitement and, and pride in the God that they were following. And they were able to, to worship even as they were walking through the midst of the waters. But others were probably walking through the waters going, what is going on? We are going to die. They're, you know, you watch Prince of Egypt and there's whales swimming by them. I don't know if that's accurate to the story. But you can imagine how scary it was for, for others that were walking through that place wondering, when is, when is this going to collapse? Are we really going to make it to the other side? What's, what's to say that it's not just going to come down on us? And yet, despite the way that they would have responded in the midst of it, every single one made it to the other side. Individual Israelites had different qualities of faith, but they were equally saved and equally delivered. And so if, if for those of you here that are struggling with fears and doubts in your life, don't think that those fears and doubts mean that, you can't, that God can't bring you through. In Christ, the work is done, the victory is won, and you will be brought over because everything is by God's grace. And so what does it mean to us? Well, it's a call not just to the Israelites, but just the same to us. Whatever you're facing, whatever barriers you've come to in your life, whatever enemies you feel pressing in behind you, there's a call to you today in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. Don't start to fight for your own salvation. The more we fight for our own salvation, the more we detract from it. And, and, and when we try to earn God's action and, and spur God's action in our lives, we'll only limit it because we haven't believed God at all as our warrior and savior. Instead, we haven't taken him at his word, but, but instead we've tried to grasp the battle on our own. And, and I do this all the time that of trying to say, well, I'm going to try to control this element and try to do this thing, and I'm going to work harder and do better. And, but if we do that even a little bit, we are showing that we trust ourselves more than we trust Christ as our savior. And so on a practical level, think about the things that you're afraid of today, the barriers that you're facing today that you can't seem to break through because the call comes to you, don't be afraid, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. If you're overwhelmed by the circumstances around you or the things, the hand that you've been dealt in your life or the terrible news cycle that's all around us, fear not. The Lord is in control of all things. If people are coming after you, if your reputation is taking shots and, and your good name is suffering, fear not. The Lord will avenge you. He will repay you. Don't grasp for your own self-defense. Let him be your defender. And listen to the call to the Israelites. You have only to be silent. 
If you're feeling pressed in your life to compromise on God's word, to shave off the edges you don't like or that are, are culturally offensive right now and, and, and to, because you want to do what's more acceptable outside in the world or what is easier, listen, there's a call to you today. Stand firm. God's word is unchanging. We're like grass of the field, but the, the glory of the Lord and the word of the Lord will stand forever. And so, so stick with the kingdom that's unshakable. Or maybe for you, you're, you feel a complaining spirit within yourself, like the Israelites. You're saying, you're saying, what, were there not enough graves in Egypt, Lord? Why have you brought me where you've brought me? Maybe you're afraid of what might come and the uncertainty as you look ahead or, or disappointed with where God has led you in your life. Maybe you're your, uncer your uncertain future and the decisions that you have to make even this week are, are just crushing you or you're overwhelmed by the day-to-day -day unrelenting grind of the demands on your life. Maybe you come here today feeling beaten down by Satan himself and you feel a roaming lion nipping at your heels and you're struggling with his whispers reminding of you, you of your own failure and sin. Don't be afraid. Stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. He knows that you're overwhelmed. He knows that you're not up for the fight. He knows that if he removes the cloud of his protection that stands between you and the enemy, that you have no chance on your own. But he is a great warrior. He's given us victory in Jesus Christ, and if we can refix our eyes on the salvation offered to us in Jesus, then the worst we face here will be put in perspective. We'll be able to see that the worst we face here will be like mosquito bites in the eyes of the weight of eternal glory. And so if you're fearful and doubting, it's okay. Remember that he has won the victory, and he will lead us home. If we can remember that, our hearts will be set free and, and we'll be able to mirror the response of the Israelites here because we'll be able to sing to God of his salvation even when we're still in the wilderness. They sang to their warrior and savior even though they had just barely passed through the sea. And so with this, just one closing reflection on this. Throughout scripture, there is a theme of the sea representing chaos and even representing the judgment of God. And so we see this in creation that it was the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep, and it was from that moment that God brought order from chaos and created a sanctuary for his people to live in. And we see this here in the Exodus account. God held back this, the waters of the sea so that his people could pass on dry ground, but what happened when, the, when Pharaoh's chariots followed? The wheels got clogged up, and he, he released his judgment over them for the sake of his glory as, the, as they dropped like lead in the sea. We see this in Jonah, that Jonah is thrown overboard from the ship into the judgment of God and sank to the depths of the sea. We need to hear that this extends to us because Jesus took on the fullness of the rightful wrath of God for us. And that if we turn to him, he will bring us through that sea. This is what we celebrate in baptism, that, that we show our unity with Christ in, in putting our own flesh to death and then rising underneath the waters of chaos and then rising to life with him. And this is why when we get to Revelation 21, it says, and then I looked and there was a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth were passing away and there was no sea. 
in eternity, the sea will be no more. There will be no chaos. There will be no need for judgment because God's enemies will be vanquished and we will live with him in eternal glory and comfort and peace, the shalom that is looked ahead to in his eternal home, his holy abode, that we will live in a place where we will be planted on the mountain of the Lord, a place which he has made his home, the sanctuary of God in the new heavens and the new earth in glory. Why? Because Christ has brought us through and he will bring us home. And so as we sing today, that's why we sing. So don't, as we sing today, don't, don't take this passively to sit back and get bored with the songs or start judging the musicians. Lift your voice to God, and if you're too beaten down to lift your voice to God, allow the voices of your brothers and sisters around you to wash over you today. But we sing to be reminded that God is a warrior who has won the victory for us in Christ, that he is our savior who has brought us through to the other side. And even though we're not home yet, we know where he's going to lead us. Father, we need your help here. We believe, will you help us in our disbelief, in our unbelief? Will you help us to see your glory and goodness and kindness We help you to see the hope that we have, that you are our warrior, that you are our strength. And would you help us to lay down the swords to fight our own battles, to fear not, to stand firm, to see your salvation, and to be willing to be silent so that you can fight for us. Father, I pray right now that that those who are hearing the whispers of the devil against their souls, that you would, you would provide a silencing buffer of your presence and give a freedom from his lies. That you would help us to see what you've done for us in Christ and that that would give us the courage to continue to follow your lead wherever you take us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.